Let's turn to our uh, scripture reading for this morning. Uh, we're looking at Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, 5 and 6, 16 and 17. Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, 5 and 6, 16 and 17. Let's give our attentive hearing to the reading of God's holy, inerrant word. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Christ. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to hear the Word of God and the Word of Christ to feed us our souls and to find a true meaning, not only in this season, but for our lives. Uh, would you speak to us in this way and give us ears, therefore, uh, to hear you? We ask this in your Son's name. Amen. So we're in um, an Advent series um, during this season, taking a break from our, our Revelation series to kind of help us approach um, Christmas uh, a bit more meaningfully and less ritualistically. Like avoid, avoid looking at Christmas kind of in this ritualistic sense. What do I mean by that? Um, there was a time when I was growing up in California as a teenager in Los Angeles when I was not yet a citizen of this country. And um, it was a little strange every year when Independence Day and um, Veterans Day came around. I would celebrate these holidays um, and, and feel like even like this measure of gratitude for being in this country. But um, there was a sense of detachment as well. I'm celebrating, right, the, the fact that I don't have to go to school, right? Uh, there's There's food and, and, and friends to hang out with. But it was, in a sense, the celebration was entirely external to me, and there was really nothing like internal to me that I was really celebrating. Um, so, in a sense, I was um, enjoying what was around me, but not so much what was uh, in me. And that's kind of how I would explain the word ritualistic to you. Um, it's, it's kind of this external observation of what's around you, but without a true celebration of something in you. So, so that kind of celebration would be more of a ritualistic um, celebration. And my hope is that, um, especially for those of you who are Christians, uh, to resist this kind of ritualistic approach to Christmas. Um, and, and go beyond that to celebrating what's internal to you. 
Um, so, so that you can say Christmas is not just what's around me, but, but it's something that's in me. It's not just what I am around, but what, what I am. Um, so in this way, uh, I hope you can include, include in the idea of celebrating Christmas, identifying with it, and, and how we can do that. That's what I want to talk to you about. How do you identify with Christmas and make that part of your celebration of Christmas? And I think this passage about the genealogy of Jesus really helps us do that. Um, it's, it's, it's one of those passages that could challenge our attention span because it just goes on and on about um, so-and-so fathered so-and-so and so-and-so fathered so-and-so. But I, I, I think as we unpack this, you find in this genealogy three things that are actually quite amazing, um, three things I want to turn your attention to today. First, you find in this genealogy, the historical Jesus. Second, the gospel of Jesus. And third, the practical power you get from Jesus. Okay, The historical Jesus, the gospel of Jesus, and the practical power from Jesus. These three points, okay? So first, the historical Jesus. And why does that matter? Um, notice how this passage begins. And really the story of Jesus begins. Verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. What is the significance of that? Uh, Tim Keller put it like this. The gospel doesn't begin with once upon a time because Christ isn't a legend. He was a flesh and blood human being in space and time. Now, if this said instead, the book of the mythology of Jesus Christ, uh, that would mean Jesus is just one of those many myths that you can pick and choose from. Uh, it's like Hercules, it's like Thor and Zeus, or modern-day uh, Batman, Robin, uh, Star Wars, right? In a, fal- in, a, in a galaxy far, far away. That's not how the Gospels begin. Um, now, if, if that was how it began, then this Gospel would really be inconsequential to you, meaning it, it, wouldn't, be, it wouldn't impact your life all that much. It would, you treat it like how you would treat these superheroes. Um, you might dress up like one in Halloween. Um, you might identify yourself as a fan of their movie, right? But that would be it. That would be it. And some people would think of Jesus in that same category. So they would say, well, you, you have your, your sort of hero figure and we have, we have our own over here. Is that, is that how we should look at Jesus, this inconsequential superhero myth that you can sort of pick and choose from? No, <laughs> why not? Uh, because Jesus is historical. Uh, Jesus, you see, actually has a genealogy. Uh, Bart Ehrman, um, some of you might have heard me mentioning him before. He's, uh, he's one of the world's well, most well-known scholar of antiquity. He teaches at UNC Chapel Hill still today. And he's an atheist. And as an atheist scholar, he often debates with Christians on the validity of Christianity because he doesn't believe in Christianity. But one of the other debates he would often hold when he's not debating with Christians is he would debate with the so-called Jesus mythicists, the people who claim that Jesus is a myth, that he's not a historical figure. And he kind of went on debating them for years, and he finally wrote a book on the topic titled, Did Jesus Exist? And in that book, he argues that the fact that Jesus existed as a historical figure is cemented in history. Uh, let me read you a couple of quotes from his book. 
Despite the enormous range of opinion, there are several points on which virtually all scholars of antiquity agree. Jesus was a Jewish man known to be a preacher and teacher who was crucified, a Roman form of execution, in Jerusalem during the reign of the Roman Emperor Tiberius when Pontius Pilate was the governor of Judea. The idea that Jesus did not exist is a modern notion. It has no ancient precedence. Uh, in a different place, in an interview, he said this, quote, this is not even an issue for scholars of antiquity. The reason for thinking Jesus existed is because he is abundantly attested in early sources. If you want to go where the evidence goes, I think the atheists have done themselves a disservice by jumping on the bandwagon of mythicism because, frankly, it makes you look foolish. So what's the takeaway here? You can hold whatever position you want on Jesus, but if you want to hold a position that is rational and evidence-based, uh, you have to abandon the mythicist position that Jesus didn't really exist. Um, you, can, you can say he's not who he said he was, but you can't say he's not historical. That would be holding on to the most irrational, non-historical, non-scientific view there is about Jesus that's out there. So, so understand, when it says in verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, that is not just some blind, blanket religious assertion. You just got to take it on faith that, that he existed as a histor historical figure. This is what all scholars of antiquity and the most, uh, the most uh, atheistic scholars of an antiquity even affirm. Now, go one step further and ask this question. Uh, so what? Okay. Um, so what if he was historical? He lived some, what, 2,000 years ago, somewhere in the Middle East? He might as well be a myth. Why does this matter to me that, that some person lived 2,000 years ago in ancient Palestine region? Why should I care? Here's why. Because Jesus claimed to be what Matthew here very clearly identifies Jesus to be, and that is the Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And, and if that was his claim, and if he was historical, you and I have to come to some verdict about that, um, whether that's true or not. Uh, this is where C.S. Lewis and his famous quote from Mere Christianity is helpful. Uh, he wrote, quote, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Do you feel the force of that dilemma or, or trilemma? Jesus is either liar, lunatic, or Lord. You must choose one. Why? Because he's historical. There are only three rational 
options. What do you say he is? Call him a crazy person, call him an evil liar, or worship him as Lord. But what you should not say, what you ought not to say, is this most irrational thing. He was just a moral teacher, a good moral example, a very woke dude. (laughs) He has not left that option open to us. He did not intend to. So, so that's the first point about the historical Jesus, the historical Jesus and why it matters. It forces you to come to some verdict. You must identify him as one of the three. To say, I don't care, I mean, essentially you're saying he, he probably lied about the fact that he's a son of God and he can give you eternal life. How do you not care about something like that if you believe that? To, to not care is really to say he's probably not telling the truth. And the Christian claim is this, that the most reasonable thing to identify Jesus as is not that he was crazy. It's not that he was this evil con artist, but that he was who he said he was, the Lord God Almighty, Yahweh himself in the flesh. To identify with Jesus as the Lord God who entered history is how you identify with the message of Christmas. And vice versa, to to really identify yourself with the message of Christmas is to identify Jesus as your Lord God whom you must fall before, bow before, and worship. There is really no other way of truly celebrating Christmas and say authentically, Merry Christmas without believing that. Otherwise, it's, it's a ritual. It's a ritual. That's the first point. Here's the second point, and that is the gospel of Jesus. That's what we see in this genealogy as well. When you start um, noticing these names and and the stories that accompany these names in the genealogy, um, you'll see that Matthew is actually preaching the gospel to you through the genealogy of Jesus. Or more accurately, Jesus is preaching the gospel to you through his own genealogy, even before he was born. And, and that kind of control and sovereignty over history also points to his divinity, his lordship. Okay, where's the gospel in the genealogy? First, as you, uh, when you look at the whole text of, of Matthew 1, you find the names of about 15 uh, or so Jewish kings, including David, Hezekiah, Uzziah, Josiah, and so forth. And, and these were some of Israel's most well-known and most celebrated kings. And yet, at the same time, when you look at the Old Testament scriptures and records, history is also very clear about their flaws, their sins as kings. Uh, Hezekiah was, in a sense, very materialistic. He showed off his treasures to his enemies and later ends up getting those treasures plundered by by his enemies. Uzziah had a pretty successful rule, but later he becomes prideful. He even dares to overthrow the role of the priesthood by claiming to be a priest himself. Uh, he becomes a leper and dies. Then, then there's, of course, the most famous of all the kings, King David. And notice how he is talked about in the genealogy. Is there any mention of the defeat of Goliath? And, and, and the Philistines. No, instead, when you look at verse 6, it says, Jesse, the father of David the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, by someone 
else's way. What this is talking about is how David had committed adultery with Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, and then had Uriah killed so that he can marry Bathsheba and cover this all up. Talk about, talk about an abusive man uh, who, who abused this woman and his power and completely taints, therefore, his legacy as Israel's king. That's what Matthew includes in the genealogy. Why? Uh, just to shame Israel uh, or, or the Jews? No. It's to highlight the gospel. The good news that Jesus didn't come to praise his ancestors, but to save them. The good news that Jesus didn't come to give you this good advice on how you can be like David, how you can measure up to these these royalties and kings, how you can be kingly. That would be good advice, but or actually bad advice. But Jesus came to preach the good news that... The king of kings has come to save us all, both kings and peasants alike. Uh, The gospel is not this message about how you, by being good, can save yourself and redeem yourself. The gospel is the good news that when none of us could save ourselves, not even King David, the Messiah has come to redeem his people. That's good news. This means Jesus didn't come to keep these insiders in and outsiders out. Because that that would mean David didn't need a Messiah. David was the ultimate insider. But this says even King David was an outsider in the eyes of God, and he also needed this gracious and merciful intervention of a Savior. Jesus didn't come to identify with the flawless and the put-together. He came to identify with the broken and the sinful and the moral failures in this world. That's the good news. Here's what else is important for us to understand about this historical context. Um, you see, genealogies during this time were, were like almost like resumes today. In so many ways, it's what gave people their, their social status and, and standing in the world. So naturally, you would want to include um, the culturally admired, recognizable names and exclude the the less admired, non-credible, less respected names. And women during this ancient time in in ancient Near East had no status, no credibility, no legal standing in court, and almost always completely excluded from genealogies. But what's so Surprising, therefore, about Jesus' genealogy is that not only are there five women mentioned, but not all these women were noble women either. Uh, Tamar, mentioned in verse 3, she played the role of a prostitute and had an incestuous relationship with Judah. Rahab, mentioned in verse 5, was a prostitute from Jericho. Ruth was a Moabite Gentile. 
And Bathsheba was the wife of a Hittite, and she was uh, made uh, ceremonially unclean by King David. And yet, Jesus is not ashamed to identify them all as his mothers, as his family. When you look at Jesus' genealogy, it's so clear. The gospel is, it doesn't matter if you're male or female, Jew or Gentile, king or prostitute. You're all equally in need of the grace of God, and that grace has come. That grace has come. Jesus is willing to identify with you all, with all of us, with all of them, as his family. And to make known to the world in this genealogy that he claims them as his loved ones. That's the gospel. He brings outsiders in. That's the gospel. Uh, So with each of this this fathering and and birthing repetition in Matthew chapter 1 in the genealogy of Christ, Matthew is preaching really one generation at a time with one name at a time, the message of God's grace and mercy. And there are 42, uh, basically, generations mentioned here because there's 14 plus 14 plus 14. That's basically 42 sermons of the gospel of grace packed into the first 16 verses of Matthew. And that's before Jesus was even born. Uh, and that's how the first Christians, the Jewish Christians, would have received this, and that's how we should receive this and hear this. How the message of Christmas, even from its origin, from in fact, the before its origin, <laughs> it comforts us as it presents to us Jesus who didn't come to congratulate the morally good and the morally successful, but he came to save those who have utterly failed. To save them to the point of uniting himself to them bringing them into his genealogy, to his family. That's, as as the angels said to the shepherds, good news of great joy. And so to celebrate this then, to celebrate his birth, to celebrate Christmas, means first you and I acknowledge that we belong in this list as broken, fallen, sinful men and women in need of grace. You must be able to identify yourself in this list to celebrate Christmas authentically and not just ritualistically, not celebrating what's around you, the trees and the lights and the gifts, but celebrating what you are according to this message of grace. And, and, and second, therefore, you celebrate that Christ has come to identify himself with you still and he's not ashamed of you only if you would repent of your sins and receive him as your Lord and Savior, he includes you, he will include you in his genealogy, in his book of life. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. And you have to identify yourself with this, this list of brokenness that turns into the book of life by his grace in order to truly celebrate the season and guys this is so different by the way um, from how our culture 
ritualistically celebrates Christmas. It's, the, it's actually the complete opposite, isn't it? Um, I've been on my favorite Christmas album tour since like Halloween. And there's about 10 or so albums I, list, I try to revisit every year. One of them is the original Dr. Seuss, How the Grinch Stole Christmas from 1966. It's a great movie, right? Um, and on Christmas Day, you're welcome to come over and watch that movie with us. But it's also a great soundtrack, just on its own. And I was just listening to it just yesterday. And um, one of the famous, more well-known tracks on that album is You're a Mean One, Mr. Grinch. You know that one? You're a Mean One, Mr. Grinch. So I was just listening to this yesterday, and it just it dawned on me. So I, I have to read this to you, the lyrics, um, to make this point. So here's how that song goes. You're a mean one, Mr. Grinch. You really are a heel. You're as cuddly as a cactus. You're as charming as an eel, Mr. Grinch. You're a bad banana with a greasy black peel. You're a monster, Mr. Grinch. Your heart's an empty hole. Your brain is full of spiders. You've got garlic in your soul, Mr. Grinch. I wouldn't touch you with a 39 and a half foot pole. And that's only halfway through the song. And it dawned on me yesterday as I was listening to this, for the it dawned on me for the first time, this is really mean. <laughs> this is a really mean song about a mean person. You're a foul one, Mr. Grinch. You're a nasty, wasty skunk. Your heart is full of unwashed socks. Your soul is full of gunk, Mr. Grinch. The three words that best describes you are as follows, and I quote, stink, stank, stunk. The, this doesn't just tell you something about Mr. Grinch, does it? It tells you about the person who's singing it. The person who's singing this is, is as mean, if not meaner than Mr. Grinch. Vengeful, unforgiving, merciless, intolerant. That's what the person singing this sounds like to me. It dawned on me for the very first time. Just throwing all the stones at Mr. Grinch with this self-righteousness. That's, that's Christmas. You're better than Mr. Grinch. And then there's the good old Santa Claus is coming to town. Um, do you know when that song has been coming up more often in our, in our house? It's when I'm disciplining my kids, right? Because if you keep disobeying your parents, you keep giving me attitude, then guess who's going to find out and, and not give you gifts this Christmas? Santa Claus, right? Uh, he's making a list. He's checking it twice. He's going to find out if he's naughty or nice. I use that song not when I'm communicating grace, but when I'm communicating the law. Break the law, you don't get gifts. I'm not advising you do that, by the way, parents. Uh, it's just my, my sinful nature coming out there. Uh, that's not comforting at all. It's a, it's a threat, isn't it? And that's a Christmas song. That's the cultural reinterpretation of Christmas. Uh, the original message of radical grace and forgiveness, a gospel message of God adopting naughty people into his genealogy, now reinterpreted, really misinterpreted, 
to mean a performance message, a work-based, self-righteous message about making the list and being better than those people. What kind of guys? What kind of list was Jesus actually making in original Christmas Day? It's all the naughty people. It's all the naughty names. Because only they can receive this gift from heaven, the gift of grace. That's what qualifies you if you're unclean, unholy, unrighteous, spiritually as naughty as you can be. And when you confess that, say, I identify with that, then you receive this gift. That although you're more sinful in God's eyes than you ever realized, you are also more forgiven and more accepted than you ever dared to believe. That's when you realize you're celebrating Christmas. There's no need to pretend that you're you're nice. You only need to repent. Don't pretend. Repent. Yes, Christ came to love me at my worst, at my most undeserving, at my most dysfunctional and sinful self. And that's good news. That's the good news I identify with. That's the good news I celebrate. Is it? Is this the the Christmas message that you identify with? Because if it is truly, then Jesus will unite himself to you. He'll adopt you. He'll add you to his genealogy, to his book of life. Finally, given the, the historical Jesus, given the gospel of Jesus, you and I as his people now, as his family members, as his church, we have the practical power from Jesus that en- enables us to identify with him year-round. That's the last point, the practical power from Jesus to identify with Christmas all year-round because we really need to. Um, here's, how, here's how we get the power. For one, see here in Scripture that there are no perfect families, not even Jesus' family. that there are no fully functional families. Not even Jesus' family was functional. It was deeply dysfunctional. And he was not afraid to stay with them and to live with them, to identify with them. Please let that sink in uh, and draw some practical power from that so that you would be able to stay with all the dysfunction that exists in your family and my family and draw from Christ hope for change and renewal. Uh, Know that no amount of dysfunction disqualifies you from receiving Christ into your life and to your family's life. In fact, the dysfunction is what qualifies you. Remember, you gotta be naughty to make his list. It's what brings you in. It's, 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 it's finding how outside you are. That's what brings you in. So don't ever discount yourself. Don't ever discount your family from Christ. 
And second, if you believe this, then, then, then know that you now have the, the only power source, the true power source in the world to keep you on this mission, to be loving with those who are most difficult to love, and that tends to be our family members, the people who are closest to us. Closest to us. Because, because then you're, you're, their flaws are most visible to you. Because they're closer to you. And your flaws are most visible to them. You can go on this mission to be loving and giving and serving towards them at their worst because you know what that's like to be loved at your worst. The love of God that came to you when you were most difficult to love. Through this historical Jesus and the gospel of Jesus, you know what that's like. That's the only power source we have. You know, Harvard uh, did one of the most famous sociological studies probably in history. It came out recently. It was an 80-year study that they did of their graduates, of all the Harvard graduates, starting from the Great Depression until now, um, thousands of them, of what impacts, um, what has been impacting their level of happiness and health the most. And you can actually see this on a TED Talk now by uh, Robert Waldinger. He's the director of adult development at Harvard University. What they found from that research was that the greatest factor that impacted these graduates' uh, level of health and happiness and longevity uh, was not how much money they made. It was not how successful they had been in their career. It's not their uh, social status, political standing. It was just this one thing, the loving relationships they were able to enjoy throughout their lives. That's what contributed the most to their level of happiness and health. The love shared with the people closest to them. Now, the, the question that this study doesn't answer is how do you, how do you keep a grip on that? How do, you, how do you keep and maintain loving relationships in your life despite the challenges that come with the territory of relationships, the, the challenge of self-centeredness, selfishness, unforgiveness, bitterness, resentment, offense, moral failures, deception, betrayal, from the closest to us. Um, how do you love people at their worst, in other words, um, when family members are at their worst, at their most difficult? They don't answer that question. If you, if you were to sit down with any counselor or any family therapist, they'll tell you basically that kind of love takes work, it takes effort, it takes sacrifice. Uh, uh, beautiful relationships don't just happen. But what they also don't often tell you is, where do you, where do you get the power to do that? Where, when, when you run out of power, when your tank is empty, what's going to refuel you and empower you to stay, to keep loving, to endure, to identify with them continually as your family? Where do you draw that power from? Do you know what the Christian answer is to that? It's Christmas. Christ entering into the dysfunctional lives of his people. Him entering into our dysfunctional families. Him entering into the dysfunctional you and me. If you identify with the genealogy of Christ, then you know what it's like to be loved by him unconditionally, 
unequally and undeservedly. And that's where you get the power to love others in the same way. As often as you remember him, as often as you celebrate him, as often as you worship him and praise him and adore him, he gives you the strength. He becomes a reason why you love others unconditionally, unequally, undeservedly. That's all we got on this side of heaven. That's all we got going for us to empower us to love people at their worst. So you see, you and I can, can now believe that even if we see all sorts of brokenness and dysfunction in our lives, in our family lives, we can hope beyond that and see that sin and dysfunction don't decide who we become or how we end up because that's not what ended up with the Israelites. Christ in you, Christ in your family is what's going to determine who you become, how you end up. Christ does. And you can say, uh, my family and my life, we're not what our dysfunction say we are. We are what Christ in our dysfunction say that we are. That is what empowers you to remain hopeful. Remain, period. <laughs> remain and not run from the people in your life who are so difficult to love. And for them to love you when you are difficult to love. Christ is where we draw the strength. And identifying, identifying with Christ as he has identified himself with you, lovingly, graciously, forgivingly, persistently. That's how you identify yourself with others, your neighbors, your family members, in the same way. And this is what identifying with Christmas means, that you identify yourself with the radical love of God that has graciously included you in his family and in his genealogy, and therefore you are empowered to radically love others and graciously include them in your story as well without giving up on them. Jesus didn't consider shameful to enter the womb of broken humanity and to be born into the mess and the dysfunctions and sins of humanity. And he overcame. He overcame. So we can be free from whatever shame we may feel or, or despair or hopelessness we may feel in, in view of the mess, in view of the dysfunction, and look to Christ, draw our hope from him, be empowered to love and to serve. Bear this fruit of Christ and his spirit this Christmas. Right? Please go beyond the, the trees and the ornaments and the lights and gifts. Bear, bear this truer ornament, the fruit. Bear this fruit on your tree, the fruit of Christ's spirit, um, so that this is not an external ritual that you observe, but an internal celebration you have from the inside out. It's not just light that's out there shining in dark space, but light in here shining in spiritual darkness and, and carry that with you into the real, the real darkness. The places where, where this light is needed the most, where love is needed the most, where grace is needed the most. This is what we're called to, to, to come and celebrate and sing about, that we can be Christ's faithful ones, joyful and triumphant in the midst of darkness. And it's not because of us, 
because of Christ in us. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, um, we thank you for this incredible uh, genealogy, this uh, spiritual naughty list, if you will, that gives us the hope of being included ourselves in your family, this true message of Christmas. We thank you for that. And, and we ask you, Lord, that we would fix our eyes on it. We would not be distracted from it. We would not um, forget it. Uh, but press into it and, and be able to truly celebrate uh, why Christ has come and the kind of love that we have received from him, the love so undeserved, love so unmerited, um, love apart from our performance. In fact, in view of our failure, he, he came to love. So, Lord, to the, to the degree that we remember this and celebrate this and sing of this, um, empower us, God, by, by your Holy Spirit uh, to, to invite others into this celebration by loving them unequally, undeservedly, uh, unconditionally. Um, we, Lord, we will not perfect this today. We will not perfect this tomorrow. But we want to just see more fruit in this. Help us to bear more fruit in this area uh, of loving those who are difficult to love, loving people at their worst, uh, especially those closest to us. Help us to bear some fruit in this this year, uh, this Christmas season. We ask that you would do this by your power, your spirit inside us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.